Fritz Hall, welcome back to the New School. This is the second segment of our conversation. I'm sitting with uh, Fritz Hall, who is the director of the Spirit of Legacy Project and the School for Knowing Home, programs of the Whidbey Institute on Whidbey Island. Fritz is the founding director of the Whidbey Institute and co-founder with his wife Vivian of Chinook Learning Center, which he co-directed for nearly 20 years. Uh, Fritz is an ordained Presbyterian minister and served as campus minister at the University Presbyterian Church in Seattle from 1963 to 1972. In 1966, Fritz and his wife Vivian purchased land on Whidbey Island, uh, where in 1972, with a group of friends, they established the Chinook Learning Center. And Fritz, in the early part of our conversation, the first segment, we covered your early years uh, growing up in a family of school teachers in Seattle. You went to high school at the high school in Seattle where your father uh, taught and was a coach. Uh, you grew up playing on the beach on Whidbey Island and, and loved that experience. Went to the University of Washington and then to Princeton Theological Seminary and after two and a half years of a sabbatical wandering around the world, uh, you came back, finished your degree, and then took the position at the church your mentor had uh, 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 been the minister at uh, and stayed there for 10 years. Um, so at the end of our conversation, uh, we uh, arrived at the point where you and Vivian realized that uh, it was time to leave the church. Uh, you bought two bicycles and a stereo set with your last paycheck and came out to this uh, old Finnish farm that you had bought in 1966 uh, and where you had now decided to create a community like the Iona community on the island of Iona off Scotland, which uh, George MacLeod had founded in the late 1930s. It was a covenant community Uh, dedicated to a new experience of the religious life. And so now you've arrived with your two bicycles and your uh, your, uh, hi-fi set um, on this island and uh, are taking up residence in your family's uh, summer cottage. And uh, when your family's out there in the summertime, Uh, living in a little cabin on this land. So there was a moment uh, in uh, the early 70s, I believe, when a group of you gathered in this living room that we're sitting in, uh, in this old farmhouse, uh, to form the Chinook Learning Center. Um, is that essentially correct? Yes. Who was there? Who was there? If I could remember, it would be nice. There was by that time a core of us that principally came out of the Seattle experience, the church experience, good friends of ours, who when we would share our dream said, oh, they're interested. They would like to discuss that. They would maybe someday like to be a part of that. 
So we met for a good solid year in Seattle before we came and started this work, trying to, you know, find people who had some resonance with this kind of harebrained idea of ours. And uh, we ended up meeting once a week, uh, creating what we then called a new educational model, a new educational process. We were all after something new, principally having to do with learning, probably our learning, um, before thinking of establishing ourselves as a, a place that would become an educational center. We were interested in forming ourselves as a learning community. In fact, that's what we called it. So um, those were the, the earliest days. The farmhouse itself was barely had windows that I had spent a whole summer trying to put in. I never paid any attention to the foundation. I bricked up the old chimney. I mean, it was a very ragtag place. And outside, we were still finding old car bodies and broken glass. We had to really do a lot of work just to reclaim the fields and the old outbuildings. And I love that. I, mean, I just, you could hardly pull me away from being outside, working on the place, or back in the forest, building trails. That almost was my first love. It was just the activity of being here and building things and imagining what could happen here. Meanwhile, we are building a community and um, beginning to read things that we had never read before. We were moving off into Zen Buddhism and Carl Jung and just areas of fascination reading The Lord of the Rings every evening, uh, that kind of stuff. We just said, there's no limitations now. There's no borders that we can't cross. There's nothing that we can't think or read or talk about. Let's really open our minds and see what's there for us. And that was very much the spirit of the 60s. So starting as we did in the early 1970s, um, we were very much, I, we would use the word freedom a lot, right, in those days. Uh, freedom from any kind of oppression, um, both personally or corporately. And so all of our discussions, and as we began to form ourselves as a community, was all done by consensus, or what we later called the spirit of consensus. We really wanted to be together. And... Uh, and it meant in those days a lot of processing, which we all got tired of. And uh, But there was indeed an honesty and a forthrightness, um, you know, shared among us as a lot of questions about power and authority, which I had personally to figure out who I was in the midst of all that. And a lot of just sort of hanging out, experimenting, trying things, uh, laughing at ourselves. <clears throat> there were people with wondrous humor in the group. So that probably saved us from taking ourselves too seriously. And uh, But we gave ourselves a lot of space to think and imagine what we wanted to do here. And there were attempts at uh, what we called appropriate technology, which all failed for us because we didn't know what we were doing. 
But that was the spirit of it. Um, let's try it, was the... So that was part of our beginning. Now, you've mentioned Iona. Maybe we ought to go there for a second because Iona was and remains to this day a huge inspiration. And you mentioned that we've been doing this kind of work for 40 years. We have been taking groups to Iona for 40 consecutive years, principally Vivian. This, this has become Vivian's work. And she just wrote a book, published just a few weeks ago, uh, about Iona, which is a gem. And she's leading probably four groups already filled this spring. So this has been a major part of our lives. I don't go every year, but Vivian certainly does. And... Um, it's, it, for a moment, it, to wonder why, what is about Iona? And this, again, is like the fog, and there's a lot of fog on Iona. It's a mystery. It's just a palpable, convincing mystery that's just so much fun to be in. And um, what, what really grabbed my interest in the beginning was George McLeod, the Iona community, which really was built, uh, I think, out of the inspiration of Columba, St. Columba, and that's 6th century. So when you're on Iona, you are bumping into <laughs> some great memory of the monks that walked that place uh, in the 6th century. Before Christian times, Iono was the center of learning, of Druidic learning. So there's a power, a lineage of power uh, on Iona that is, um, for me, just unimaginable. And to be walking there and to try to think of what's been going on on that island for such a long time. And in the 6th century in Columbus' work, that was the Celtic brand of Christianity, not the Roman one. So they had a very different theology, uh, and it was a very positive theology, for instance, not believing in things like original sin, um, but um, basically believing in life's goodness and blessing. And so there was a huge work of Columba and his people that spread throughout actually much of Europe. So... Iona was a light in the Dark Ages. Uh, Iona was a great center of learning and of discipline, and of scholarship, and produced the Book of Kells. Um, so to think of Iona, to invoke Iona, to be on Iona, is to sense that somehow you just may be part of a great tradition or lineage or stream of power that has always emanated from that place and which is available to bless you uh, and accompany you or inspire you in our work. And so we always felt in early Chinook, and to, I feel it today, is that there is so much that can come from a place so small. And so Chinook, to me, could just as well remain something pretty small as long as it was powerful. 
and that would be to be true to the Iona tradition. Um, that you don't know where the ripples of your work, your collective work, are going to travel. They just go out and out and out. And the art in it all is to remain renewed in your vision and uh, pretty steadfast in your work and your inner work. Try to hold it all together so that it remains over time if it wants to. Uh, and be diligent as leaders like you and I have learned and to stick with it in times of huge questioning and when it seems like it could virtually fall apart. And it actually did once here. The work fell apart. And um, nevertheless, you think, well, let's try it again. Let's keep going. Well, let's, let's take that moment for a yeah. moment because um the moment of of the dissolution yeah yeah so let's just kind of in other words you 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 show up here having bought it in 66 you show yeah. up in 72 having left the ministry um and as i understand the story correct me uh you let it for a while and then at a certain point uh you left uh were invited to leave whatever the people who continued it uh, could not manage to, for whatever reasons, keep it going. And so you were invited to come back with the Whitby Institute. That's the version that I carry in my head. So perhaps you can correct that. But I'm 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 interested both in the the first period when you ran it, and then the process because, like that, I mean. I was invited to step down at Commonweal at a certain point. There was a point at which all our funding collapsed. The mm. board of directors mm. lost faith in me. Oh uh, they said, you know, step uh. aside as executive director. You can keep the title of president. Uh. Had the business manager take oh, over, you know, the whole nine yards. I was mortgaging my house to make payments on the place and so on. That was the year that, you know, that happened. My dog died. My father developed cancer and my first marriage ended. So that was a transformative year and but what, what year was that that was uh 1982 hmm. uh and i had started commonweal in 1976 so it was six years in hmm. um uh but i was crazy enough just as i was crazy enough to give up a tenure track job at yale yeah. as you gave up yeah. the job at, at the <laughs> as minister i gave up a tenure track teaching job at yale to go out and start a school for delinquent kids in Bolinas, build it from yeah. the ground up, called Full Circle, which ran for 30 years, and then started Commonweal in 76. Uh, and so each of these decisions, to leave Yale, to start this school and build it from the ground up, to start Commonweal, each of them was clinically insane. I mean, yes. you, know, you had to be out right. of your mind to make those Good. decisions. And yet, like you, <laughs> all my life, I've been following some inner prompting, yep. the inner prompting that told me to come up to Whitby and do something as crazy as Good. find a place up here. So I'm, as a fellow pilgrim on this hard road that we have both traveled, right. I would love to understand the segments of that. Sure, I'll yeah. do yeah. the best I can to tell the story the way that yeah. I experienced yeah. Yeah. it. I have to say to you that it's, it's actually very comforting 
to hear you talk about the difficulties. Um, because that's one experienced person talking to another mm -hmm. experienced person yeah, and say, hey, it. you know what, this is hard. Yeah. This is really It's hard. as hard as it gets. And um, huh. I was talking to two people yesterday who founded an organization and left it in great shape, and now it's in shambles. And it's like, well, how do you feel? Well, they've just gone on with another version of, of the same work. I had a funder uh, give some money recently to the work that I'm currently doing, mm -hmm. and she said, Fritz, it's okay if you fail. I thought, I've never, ever had a funder say a thing like that to me. And I just found out the most comforting, mm -hmm. understanding mm -hmm. thing. Um, isn't that great to have a... Well, you have this quote at the beginning of this wonderful proposal that you wrote called The School for Knowing Home. Right. I just want to read it for a moment because it's so apropos. Um, this uh, uh, The proposal starts with a quote from Barack Obama from 2009. <laughs> and here's the quote. Better to jump in, get involved. And it does mean that sometimes you'll get criticized and sometimes you'll fail. And sometimes you'll be disappointed. But you'll have a great adventure. And at the end of your life, hopefully, you'll be able to look back and say, I made a difference. And for you... Writing this proposal in 2010, <laughs> uh, like me, you know, serial social entrepreneur, yeah. you know, we just can't stop creating things. That's just what we do. What's next? And and I just loved that. Um, and I loved, you know, here you are uh, at whatever age being born in 1936 makes you. Um, you're still inventing stuff. You're still I asking I what's next. And you're still... And I, I love the fact that when I read this proposal, because I read a lot of proposals, uh, I, um, I realized that you and I have, in addition to a similar history, we have a similar methodology for doing projects. Mm. So you outline this, and here's the thing about finances. The finances, we could adopt the somehow principle. We begin and trust and go exploring. <laughs> believing that if this project is needed, as needed in the world as we believe it is, then it will happen. And so that I, my whole theory at Commonweal, every time I start something new, like the new school, which is this, yeah. is, I don't start with any money. I just start it. Yeah. And my theory is that my way of framing this is I hate to give other people the power to decide what I'm going to do. And so if you learn to start things with no money, then instead of saying to funders, if you give us money, we will start things, you say to them, look, we started this, and we're doing it, and we're going to do it, and if you'd like to join us, then we can strengthen it. So we have a, a similar history of serial, crazy social entrepreneurship and a similar method of just starting things and hopefully learning something from them. And they fail and fall apart, and you get up and start again, you know? At least that's the way I look at it. Michael, I, 
<laughs> I'm having a, an experience sitting here listening to you because you and I haven't known each other real well no. in these past years. We've known like each other I'm for meeting maybe you for the first years. time. Yeah. I, um, I don't talk to very many people like you who just understand yeah. what you, of course, understand because it's also you. Um, huh. This is this is quite fascinating. So tell me the story. Yeah, now which story are we on? Well, we're, we're on the story of uh, Chinook Learning Center from 1972 to when it fell apart, and then what happened as well, best okay. you can understand it, and then how the Whidbey Institute started, and then was invited right. back to take over what had uh, fallen apart. Okay, actually. here's the quick version. Yeah. Um, I, Vivian and I were the founders and co-directors of Chinook for 19 years. Mm-hmm. And shortly before 19 years, I really felt, I've done this long enough. Mm-hmm. I, I'm becoming more and more of an administrator. There's now a big organization to worry about. And I can do administrative work. I'm a double Virgo. I can stick with it. But if I find that I'm not inventing or creating or doing silly, crazy things because I'm so busy administering, then I'm unhappy. And I began to feel that with trying to keep so many parts and pieces of Chinook going, my creative part wasn't happening so much. Um, So I thought, it's just time to... You're going to have to do it anyway to turn it over to other people. And so, okay, now find those people or create the board, create an understanding, and at some point you step totally away and say, okay, now you guys you guys run this place. I'm going to find something probably in some parallel way of working with you, um, but I'm not going to be the director. So that was my intention, and we did it. Happily, and I then started with Vivian to write. We got a grant from the Lilly Endowment to do some writing, and then I did this book, Earth and Spirit, and began to dream of something kind of like Chinook, but more of the monastic school idea. That was our image of the smaller, more intense, deeper work and let Chinook be the bigger public place where a lot of people could come. It could be sort of the cathedral, and we would be in the same village, but would be as the small, studious ones <laughs> doing the deeper work, and that they belong to each other somehow, the monastic school and the cathedral. Um, so I began to form what we then called the Institute for Earth and Spirit. And... Chinook then went on for about three and a half years on its own, and the leadership would turn over and then turn over again and then a new board. And for whatever set of reasons that I'm not sure I actually fully understand, it just got weaker and weaker, and leadership started disappearing, and funding disappeared, and it, it, it didn't explode as it did sort of implode. It just withered and fell in on itself. And at the very end of that period, they, I tried to stay, I was, I was totally distant from it, and I didn't even 
actually come up here on the land very much. Uh, they say to me, oh, okay, sort of like talking to Papa Bear, what, what, what do we do now? And I said, well, go to the elders and ask them. Anybody that you think is an elder in this tribe, you go find them and say, what do we do? What do you think? And so they did that. And evidently the elders said to them, well, you need to give it away. Give it to those people who are starting the Institute for Earth and Spirit. They're some of the same squad with the same vision. They're fresh and eager to go. Um, they love the land. Just give it to them. And so with the help of our attorney, Doug Kelly, there was a night when the barest remnants of the board voted in a totally new slate, which was, of course, the slate, the 16 who had formed the Institute for Earth and Spirit. So suddenly Chinook had a brand new board and staff. And what year was that? Oh, I can't remember. All right. 1992? Yeah. And sort of out of that dismal winding down, mm -hmm. uh, there was this quiet transfer of ownership. I mean, suddenly this little 16 owned the place. It, it owned the organization. Um, and those 16 that had already formed the, what was going to become the Woodby Institute, the Institute for Earth and Spirit, had all been on Iona together as a group. And in that experience on Iona, I'm there with what we call the Blue Book, another pamphlet saying, okay, you guys, here's the vision that I see. And I've been working at this for a long time. I am willing, I'm going to ask you if you want to be a part of this. And if you do, I'll tear up this book right in front of you. <laughs> Which was a little bit out of my character. But what I meant was, I, I, this is the vision in my head, but I am now ready to crack it open so that it's a game everybody can play. But you have to understand this is the direction, basically, that I'm headed. So we actually all did that. And, um, and so that became the board. And then we had to rewrite the Articles of Incorporation and in that process change the name and really created a new organization. And it was no longer a religious 501c3. It was now an educational 501c3 with a brand new name. And then so off we go as Whidbey Institute. Um, there, were, um, there were things that happened right in that period that did not... Um, the surrounding community of Whidbey Island could not find respect for decisions that that fragile board made at the end. So there was sort of abroad in the land a kind of unhappiness. So the first couple of years of Woodby Institute was to overcome that and to say, okay, there's something new happening here, and and we had to build trust and confidence and <laughs> finances, and we had to build a whole new organization. And one of the oddest moments of my life 
was to walk back into our headquarters building down in Clinton, the, what we had called the Dodge building, where, where all our offices were, not here on this land, and to go back into it just about four years later and sit down and say, well, I guess I'm back. Uh, okay, here we go. And It's the cost of discipleship. Yeah, oh, I guess so. And I remember Michael removing old posters off the wall and just sort of stripping the building, mm. trying to make it, okay, we're, mm. we're starting afresh, and I'm not going to sit in my old office that I used to have. I'm going to sit here in this brighter conference room and and wait to see who comes. And then, sure enough, people would walk up the stairs and say, mm. okay, I... I'm, I I'll be your receptionist. I'll do this. I'll do that. And and it wasn't putting Humpty Dumpty back together again. It was really taking, in a way, the treasured remnants of the old mm-hmm. and uh, embracing them and certainly the land, which everybody loved. No question about that. And starting, starting in again. So there's a way of thinking about this, I guess, that from... 72 to 92 uh, to 91, but 19 years you ran the place. Yeah. And then you decide it's time for something new. You turn it over to other people, feel good about doing that. And it turns out that that group can't make a go of it, basically. That's correct. And so you you are asked what should happen you say consult the older elders. The elders say, turn it back over to Fritz, essentially. And you created the Institute for Earth and Spirit, which will later become the Whitby Institute, with a group of people on the island of Iona. And so I would imagine that it might have been with some mixed feelings and maybe even some reluctance or fatigue or something, that you returned to start again. I don't know that, but I'm just asking. That's a very good guess, Mike. Yeah. I mean, here you are. (laughs) You've done it for 19 years. You thought you were finished with it. You're going to do something else, and then it collapses. And so here you are uh, in 92, and now again, 2013 as we speak, Again, it's 20 years later. So this is the second 20 years. That's right. And in fact, if I understand correctly, um, after you stepped down as director of the Whitby Institute, again, the Whitby Institute struggled with leadership for a significant period of time. There were, mm-hmm. one person said, counting temporary people, there were like 10 directors, some number, I don't know what it is. Six. Uh, six, okay. Uh, and now, of course, you have uh, Jerry Milhon and, and Heather Johnson, who I think and most people think are doing a really spectacular job. They of, are. Uh, you know, the debts are paid off and there's a new sense of vision, which is That's right. wholly congruent with your vision. But uh, at least in my judgment, it's wholly congruent. But um, so it hasn't been an easy road. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Um, in the transition that we were talking about between Chinook and Whitby Institute, 
Oh, I actually heard a board member the other day refer to that as the name change. And I thought, well, they, they haven't done a clue as to what really happened. It wasn't mm. just a name change. There was a sea change uh, that was hard. Mm. And for me personally, since you're interviewing me, I was, um, let's see, what would be the words? Um, oh, a word I used to use was bewildered. Mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't understand why it should collapse. I didn't know if we were really going to create something new and wonderful. Um, I just, I, I guess I did the only thing that I knew how to do. Um, there wasn't any question whatsoever that we, I, should let the assets go. I mean, all of us have loved this land. I mean, you interview anybody, and they're going to tell you they love this place, and they don't want anything to happen to it. And so I think that's where people really closed in together was, well, at least we have to save the place, if not the organization. And I thought, well, I understand the place. I I understand what that is part of my responsibility to do that. So that's why I, that's one reason that I entered back into the scene was I was determined that nothing was going to happen to the place. If, if it was up to me, I was going to do that. And then, okay, if we do that, what can we do about the organization? And that's to reinvent it. And there were reasons, just like I said about the now, profit status going from religious to, to education, that's significant. And, um, and that's the, uh, the direction of a broader, more inclusive institute um, than at least the way the sh- that Chinook started out. So it was very hard, um, but I just, I, I really didn't doubt it that we were... It, there was just no question of letting it go or let some or selling it or something else should happen to it. And there wasn't anybody else saying, oh, I want to do that or I want to take it over or I've got a better idea. There just, it was like we came to the edge and nobody could see the future. And I just thought, okay, I bet I can do this. Um, and... And thought, well, we're going to learn from our mistakes and we'll probably make some new ones. And I know how to ask people to come into this and bring their intelligence and their energy and their goodwill and forgive whatever we have to forgive and um, overlook whatever we have to overlook and create for ourselves our own new vision. So how long did you remain as the director of the Whitby Institute. What year did you step back? Oh, you know what? I should know that date. Roughly. What was that? I think I was like six or seven years as director of Whitby Institute. Uh-huh. And then the same thing happened uh, as the, I, I, like identical to the ending, my ending with Chinook. Mm-hmm. I just felt, well, because in that six or seven years, we built quite an organization, mm-hmm. once again, and a big budget. For me, a big budget and staff, mm-hmm. and and I was back into the role of the administrator mm-hmm. rather than mm-hmm. having a more teaching yeah, role yeah. or 
working with small groups, which I love, um, and thought, I first thought, let's find an administrator. I'll move over to the side a bit and let somebody run the place. And then it was like, well, and this is where I really got some counseling, counseling and coaching or whatever from a few friends that said, Fritz, why don't you just let the whole thing go now? Just give the whole thing. Don't give part of it. Give the whole thing over to somebody else. How about if we find a new director? In fact, we'll call them an executive director, which I didn't like because he had never liked this sort of institutional-sounding language. or. Um, but that's how a lot of things were going. They were becoming more institutionalized, and they had these longer titles. And I thought, that's just kind of not me. Um, so if the organization feels it needs an executive director, fine, then they better get one. And so... I was playing quarterback, and I asked, could I play end or something else? And so that was our uh, challenge in that period of finding the right place for Fritz and finding a new executive director. And so that was, it was, it was understood, okay, we can do that. We're going to do that. That's, that's where we're going to go. And Fritz Somehow you're just going to have to land on your feet. You're going to have to invent, again, a place for you that doesn't bother the Woodby Institute. You're not the shadow. You're not lurking around second-guessing. You're going to have to be quiet. You're going to have to, we call it a discipline of science, a distance. That's what we call it. And I thought, I can do that because uh, I actually don't want to second-guess or administer any longer. I want to be free of that. So the Institute then took it on and, just as you said, had to find one director and then another and then another and went through a period of actually weakening because you can't go through leadership changes like that um, and not right. lose confidence out right. there in the bigger world. And now the place is very strong and steady, just as you said, and is creating yet another future for itself. Meanwhile, do you want to do the next part? Where yes. I, okay. So my interests are spirituality and the earth. These two. Earth and spirit. spirit. Actually, before we get to the next part, yeah, I, want to, I want to put that on hold, because that, then we're going to go to the next thing you invented, basically. Yeah, okay, right? good. Okay. But I want to, yeah, I want to sit, because the, the time is right, in other words, we're uh, in term. We're in 1992 or whatever, right. and uh, so you you hold this conference right. uh, in uh, Seattle, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, you gather a bunch of folks, and um, yeah, this book issues from an exceptionally powerful conference in Seattle in 1990 entitled Earth and Spirit, the conference was sponsored by the Chinook Learning Center, 20-year-old innovative educational center and community on Whidbey. At that time, I was co-director of Chinook and principal organizer of the conference. So 
You know, it's really interesting, Fritz, for somebody who's done something as extraordinary as you have, you have left very few traces, uh, which is very interesting in terms of if you look you if you look up Fritz Hall on the internet, you don't get a lot of stuff. You get that you got the Thomas Berry Award, you get Alan Atkinson's interview with you uh, for In Context magazine. Uh, but there's the internet in terms of you know I spent some time on the internet. There's not all that many traces, which is unusual yeah. for somebody who's done something. You know there is this book. Earth and Spirit, the Spiritual Dimension of the Environmental Crisis, with the introduction by Thomas Berry. But the, the traces are not there the way they usually are for somebody who has uh, made a contribution of the scope of yours. And it's just interesting to me, because mm -hmm. usually when I do one of these conversations, there's a lot on the internet that I can get at. You know, there's not a long entry on you on Wikipedia that you know tells the story in detail, all that kind of stuff. So um, what I wanted to do was to read some of the contributors to this, because this is my tribe also to a uh, large degree. Uh. So preface by Fritz Hall, forward by Thomas Berry, the great theologian, geologian, right. core thinker of uh, an earth-based spirituality. Then Vivian Hall on the power of the well-packed question. Then Thomas Berry, Into the Future. Then Practicing the Presence by Joanna Macy. Uh, then The Joining of hum Human Earth and Spirit by Daniel Martin. The Soul and the World by the poet David White, who also lives in, uh, in Langley. Cosmogenesis by Brian Swim. Imagination Gaia and the Sacredness of the Earth by David Spangler. Earth is Our Home by Susan Osborne. Reimagining the Role of the Human and the Earth Community by Sharon Delos Park. The first person I don't know, reminded by beauty, Barry Harum. The first person I don't know on this list. Um, the View from the Grounds by Kurt Holting. I had dinner with Kurt and Sally last night. Also, uh, you know, residents here. Uh, in fact, the most extraordinary experience with them last night. The Path of Place by Sheila Kelly, who I don't know. There are a few people I don't know It goes on. But then you have Environment and Religion by James Park Morton, the extraordinary uh, uh, former uh, head of the Cathedral of St. John the Divine in New York, who uh, married my brother, presided over my father's funeral, and was my mm. mother's mm. confessor. Um, wow. And, you know, on and on, uh, Action, Absurdity, and Faith by Alan Atkinson, Food a Sacrament by Sister Miriam Therese McGillis, a Spirit Ritual by Larry Parks DeLose, again, Responding to the Crisis by Fritz Hull, The Power of Our Grief by Joanna Macy. Uh, um, I Don't Really Know John Graham's work, uh, and The New Story, Old Story by Paul Gorman, who headed the National Religious Partnership for the Environment. I just got an email from him last night. So what struck me in reading this is, as you say, we don't know each other very well, uh, and yet, there is this community of which we are both a part mm -hmm. and which you gathered mm -hmm. in 1990 in Seattle and mm -hmm. brought them all together mm -hmm. and created a, a communal document which, uh, 23 years later, reads 
uh, close to, well, there's a lot of the present in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and so I just wanted to bring this out because we, we can talk about the institutional history, we can talk about how the institution goes up and down, the struggles of a founder to, fi- to find somebody to take his place that can make it work. It takes you six people, but now it's going really well. But the real story is the community of thought and vision and service that came together. That's the real story. And uh, the other stuff is just the struggle, you know. But this is the real story. And um, I guess I just wanted to ask you... um, how you feel. This was at the 20-year point, basically. Now we're 20 years later. But how do you feel about the contribution you made to this national and indeed global community, but in this case, national community, of people who um, to this day share a vision? Michael, I wish that I could explain or describe my experience of that. I think better than I feel prepared to do without more reflection, but I very much appreciate your seeing that that probably is more where I've actually been working Um than either here on this place or building an organization. I have been participating myself in that larger community and have tried very hard over the years to help uh, help an aspect of that larger community to be present here as teachers and friends. And... I think that I have seen my work, perhaps to a fault, as primarily the chalice builder. So I'm in love with this place and the old buildings and this quiet way of gathering people from across the country and feeling that that's really kind of the major part of my work is to is to bring people together in a um, sort of a wondrous spirit of integration, that everything belongs together. Let's bring it together and see what happens to the, the very people that you're talking about because they are often touched themselves. They're not just kind of whizzing through giving a workshop. And we did build this larger collegial fellowship, and a lot of it still exists. I mean, I still feel myself like you, part of this larger cloud of, of witnesses. A cloud of uh, unknowing. Yeah. <laughs> I like when Brian Swim comes here and Mary Evelyn. They love this place. Right. And they have contributed over the years to this place. And Mary Evelyn being Mary Evelyn Tucker, the yes. great biographer of uh, Thomas Berry and great yes. commentator. On and it, right? a colleague with Brian. So they and often of speak Swim, and work right. together. And so these people are dear friends 
and they're somehow part of this larger ongoing, fairly brilliant fellowship of mm-hmm. characters. Mm-hmm. That's how I think of them. So if I'm the chalice builder, I'm sort of the organizer bringing people together, creating the place, creating the occasions like the Earth mm-hmm. and Spirit Conference where things can happen. I've always felt that part of my work is to build a, a resource-rich learning environment in which uh, wisdom reveals itself. You know, truth happens. Um, magic occurs. And love Love happens uh, between people um, and a great love of the natural world. So I used to, in all those years, and still, I don't insert myself very much. I didn't build a stage for me to go up on it. I built a stage for a lot of other people to go up on it. And I felt very comfortable with that. I felt... I have a role to sort of instigate and conspire and be the quieter one who makes sure that it really happens. That's been more my role. So if there's not many traces, it is because I didn't write a lot. I I didn't build a dossier. I didn't do a lot of the things you might do. To if you're the one that's out in the world. I wanted a community to be out in the world and to see myself as a member of the community and not necessarily its leader. I did the leader thing because I felt I could. I felt called to do it, and I, I, I could handle it. And um, so I did it. But I wasn't necessarily thrilled with... As I told you, I didn't want the title executive director, right? What did you what, call yourself? I was a director. Okay. Director's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, at Finhorn, they would use the word focalizer, which we thought was always a little too mysterious. Speaking of Finhorn for yeah. just a moment, um, when you've described when Iona came right. into the story, when did Finhorn come <laughs> into the story? The same time. Same time. <clears throat> when we did started, you visit it? Yes. Oh, yes, a lot. At the same time that you visited Iona? Yeah, I should have mentioned earlier, uh, Finhorn. Yeah, we started going to Iona in 1970, first time. By 71, 72, we were off visiting the other side of Scotland and dropping in on the Finhorn community. Got to know that community quite well and its leadership. And uh, usually spend a week or two there and then started inviting some of their leadership here. Including David Spangler. Oh, yeah. And then David then moved And then David moved here. And in fact, I've done a new school conversation with David in his house near Seattle. Um, Right. And again, for the the tape, uh, David Spangler is a really extraordinary person. He was, I guess, considered for a time the spiritual leader of Fendhorn, uh, and uh, by his account decided he didn't want to hold that role anymore and, and moved back to the States and uh, yes. and settled up near here and uh, continues to uh, teach and uh, uh, do, do wonderful right. work. Right. And David's been a, a wonderful associate and dear friend right. for many, many years. Right. And we did a program at Chinook for 11 years 
a very intensive, long program called Course Studies, and David and I would teach together in Course mm. Studies. So we're, we've been very close. Findhorn, I would say, was uh, impressive to us largely as a community, a really fun community of crazy people uh, and who pioneered, I think, a lot of technique about around community building. We were less interested in some of the esoteric trappings of, <laughs> of, of Fendorn. Um, but Did they they were very influential uh, for us as we build our community. Was, Did you run into Brother David Stondel Rast on your travels or not? Well, there used to be a picture right here in the hallway of oh, this Brother house, David. a big picture of Brother David and me walking right up there. Uh-huh. No, no, Brother Kate. You know, he came here several times. To me, Brother David, I mentioned to you off the tape that I did uh, a seven-hour spiritual biography of Brother yes. David last yeah. year at the request of his community. And I hadn't read him before, and mm-hmm. I proceeded to read all his books and do these seven hours. And I must say that I think he's one of the most extraordinary Mm-hmm. contributors to I mean what he did was to take um, you know to take Catholicism and by tracing the deep meaning of every word in the the deepest Catholic monastic tradition back to its sources to completely open it back up to a universal yes. Catholicism but he insists, he says, without any of the mumbo-jumbo. In other words, his theology yes. has a kind of a, a Zen simplicity to yes, it. Yes, it does. Uh, when he talks about uh, the Holy Spirit or whatever, he finds it in the folk sayings of common people. Mm-hmm. You know, I think he's extraordinary. Mm-hmm. I he think is. he's just extraordinary. And he was a big yeah. influence. Yeah. Right here on us. Right. I, I totally agree. Yeah. A remarkable and, man. And for me, he and Thomas Berry um, <clears throat> represent two people who, I mean, many people I could mention, but I, I guess I have a certain sense of being intrigued, for example, a deep sense of being intrigued by David Spangler's visions and, you know, what he can see in the mystical or esoteric realms. But my experience is that isn't available to everybody. That's right. Whereas what Thomas Berry does and what Brother David does is completely accessible on a universal basis using a Christ-centered original vocabulary and opening it to the universal for a renewal of what that can mean in our time. And I I just having thought a lot about it, because I personally am deeply drawn to the esoteric as well, but I don't think that creates global community. I think global community must be done without the mumbo-jumbo. I agree. Yeah. And I would say about Chinook Rugby Institute that we've been very, very cautious around mumbo-jumbo mm-hmm. or any particularized 
religious terminology. Right. We've always been careful of that. Mm-hmm. And we've also been careful here not to establish ourselves as having a teaching mm-hmm. because there isn't any guru here. And I, mm-hmm. that's one thing that we made sure. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons for my quietness and hesitation to go up on stage is because mm-hmm. it's easy for people to sort of identify you with the place, with the movement or whatever your thing mm-hmm. is. And then I think we always, Vivian and I, stood aside so that there were many who entered the center of it while trying to exercise a strong leadership that held the whole thing together, you know, over the years. Are we coming back to Thomas Berry and some of these stellar people? Well, part of the work and part of the privilege of being here all this time is to meet these exceptional scholar, teachers, wise ones who have come here. And I would say one of the wisest of all, and who for me personally has profoundly influenced my life and the way I think, uh, is Thomas Berry, who many times sat here in this room. I didn't mention that in the early years of starting Chinook, I felt a little lonely up here uh, before a lot of people came. And so I'd be out in the fields thinking, I'm too much on my own. What I am doing is falling in love with everything that's out there, the grass, the trees, the sky. I I had a very deep experiencing of the natural world, sort of being here a lot on my own. But I knew I needed to read and think and write, and so I enrolled in a a doctor of ministry program at San Francisco Theological Seminary to put myself under a discipline. And it was hard to be both up here doing all this and enrolled in a program that took me several years to complete, which I finally did. And my dissertation, I explained to the faculty, uh, could only be on one thing, and you have to let me do it or I'm not going to complete the program. And I said, it has to be on spirituality and nature. And so this progressive seminary, San Francisco, said, well, you know what, we don't have anybody here to work with you. We really don't know anything about that area, and you probably are not going to find anything in this library, but you can do the topic. And so that got me going, of a lot of reading and thinking and writing about spirituality and nature, because I knew that's what was happening in me. As I walked in the fields that I'm sitting here looking at, I could feel something happening in me that there was no language from Princeton Seminary that I had that would help me understand what was happening to me. Um, And so I just said, well, I'm not going with my education. I'm going with my experience and see where that goes. And so it was the naturalists like Thoreau and Muir and others who I really felt such a strong resonance with and then just kept reading from there on out. And um, and then near the end of Chinook, Vivian and I said to each other, is there something that we could do that would really be pretty bizarre? What is, what's, what's something we could think of that is really out of the box that we haven't been doing for the last 18, 19 years? And so we actually said, well, let's meditate about this. Let's just sit still for a day or two and say, what is it? And we came back together and we said, okay, what'd you get? 
what'd you hear? And as you might guess, we heard the same thing. And that is just do a big number on spirituality and the earth. It's new, it's time. Do it. So we said, well, we're not even going to do that on Woodby Island. We're going to the city for that one. And created the Earth and Spirit Conference, which I would say, looking back over 40 years, is sort of the high water mark of not just programming, but the, the convergence of ideas and readiness in the culture to bring spirituality and nature together, which it really hadn't been. In fact, I, I put those two together as a title. I didn't know what to call the conference, so I knew I had to put an ampersand in the middle of it. It had to be like earth and spirit. And native people, there's a huge number of native people involved in this conference, said to me, Fritz, why are you putting that and in there? We don't do that. Earth and spirit is the same thing for us. And I said, well, I'm putting it there because it isn't the same thing for us. So all that dissertation work uh, fed right into the creation of this conference. When the conference was over, I met, for the first time, Stephen Rockefeller, who had done almost an identical conference on the East Coast, called it Nature and Spirit. No, Spirit and Nature, something like that, and, and did a book. So it was like, uh, this, this is one of those times where the idea, um, whatever you want to call it, is in the field and it's, it's going to happen. And we were, in a sense, among the first to sort of bring that together. Um, and it was a powerful gathering. You know, you've got Brian Swim and Tom Berry and Joanna Macy and everybody excited about the new coming together with Native people there. Um, it was... Thomas Berry said afterwards to me, he said, <clears throat> he said, you got a conference like that only once in a lifetime. And I, I like that from him. Is, where did you meet Thomas Berry? When, when did you encounter his work and where did you meet him? We just heard about him. And through Joyce Quinlan, who was a, a nun, and she said, can I bring this person? I'm, well, who is he? Well, I just trust me. I said, fine. What, what year, roughly? Oh, this is early. This is in the early 80s. And Thomas Berry was producing only little mimeograph papers. That's when Miriam McGillis wrote yeah. him, too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. When so did we you brought meet, him out here. When did you meet Miriam, by the way? I've forgotten. It was somewhat okay. later Okay. met Miriam. Right. So, and by the way, uh, Thomas Berry was at Commonwealth a couple of times. Mm. So I had the joy of meeting him. Yeah. Well, so you you first we could spend a couple hours talking about Thomas Berry. You first met him in the early eighties, so it was about eight years before this conference. Yes. Uh huh. So the first time he came out here, what was your impression? What do you remember? Well, I remember him sitting right over there, and there was another priest. We brought two priests, and one had written a book called Hot and Cool Sex. Mm -hmm. And then there was Thomas Berry, who hadn't written anything, and nobody knew who he was. And so we thought, well, all the show will go in this direction, but we'll have this other man, this kindly gentleman, say whatever he has to say. And I remember sitting right about where you are, 
that this man tried to make something attractive, and this man over here just sat quietly, and then this man over here began to defer. He went quiet, and Thomas Berry just spoke, and all the attention went to Thomas Berry. So he just made this sort of quiet entrance, you know, and totally captivated our minds and hearts and was speaking in a way that we were ready to think. In other words, there was like enough readiness in our own minds to go that direction, but we didn't know how to articulate it. So and this it, was eight years, 1980, yeah. after the founding of Chinook Learning Center. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So... Uh, Eight years into it, is it fair to say that, I'm just asking, that that was a kind of turning point for you, meeting With Thomas Berry? Yeah. Definitely a turning point. Yeah. Definitely. Because, I mean, you built and named Thomas Berry Hall, which is this yeah. extraordinary... And there was no discussion right. or debate about that. Right. It was like, of course, of right. course you'd name it Thomas Berry Hall. There was right. an, another idea around. Right. Everybody said that. Let me tell you a story going back to the Earth and Spirit Conference where Thomas yeah. Berry was there and Brian and this whole wondrous collection. On the Monday following, when the conference had evaporated, we still had one meeting that Danny Martin put together of the North American religious something or other. So Thomas Berry stayed over and a few others. And... The big meetings had been held at the University Christian Church, which had this big, old, beautiful sanctuary. Where I forgot to tell you, as a junior high kid, I would go there on my own and sit in the balcony. It was a building, it was a something in there that I loved. And here I was bringing this big Earth and Spirit Conference back into that space that I knew as a kid. Isn't that funny? And we rebuilt the whole front of the church. We put scaffolding, we brought in trees. I mean, we really went all out for this one. But the Monday meeting, we didn't have that available. We had to go down the block to the University Presbyterian Church. So I am back for the Monday meeting with Thomas Berry and some of the squad in the very room where I used to speak to college students. And I just felt, this is bizarre. Because by that time, I didn't feel very welcome in that church because they all knew that I had gone off in some crazy direction. Michael, in that meeting were two of the Native people that had been with us throughout the conference, Chad Skatum and his wife, Willie. And, and we arrived um, a little bit late and had to go in and late into the big gathering, me and the two Native people, with a drum that they were going to give to Thomas Berry, which they had presented him in the conference, but at that moment he wasn't in the room. And so we were going to do it again on this Monday. And I remember we were going to have to interrupt the meeting to do this, and I said to Willie, this very small, older Native woman, oh, gosh, we're going to have to interrupt the meeting to do this. And she looked at me and she said, Fritz, what do you think they're going to do, incarcerate us? And this is a woman who couldn't speak her native tongue growing up. Um, 
So we interrupted the meeting, presented the drum to Thomas Berry, and then all that went fine. And I was really curious. The meeting was a little boring. So later I left it and started wandering around the halls of this church, you know, where I had been on the staff and met Vivian and got married and ordained into the ministry thinking, this is really crazy. I'm back in this conservative church my whole new life and hadn't been back in there for years and not feeling very welcome. But I went down into the sanctuary, this big, long, beautiful sanctuary. I went up to the front, and I opened the big pulpit Bible and turned to an Old Testament um, thing that was read in my ordination. I was just sort of revisiting a little bit of my past, almost being a little silly about it, you know. and But I was out there all alone and just remembering all this stuff. And Chattiskatum and Willie start walking down the central aisle and went up into the chancel with me. Is that something? And I said to them what I was doing. And I, I knew them fairly well. And I said, you know, I am standing here asking, why am I still ordained? Why didn't I give up the ministry? See, I'm still an ordained Presbyterian minister. And Chattis Kadam and Willie just smiled and looked at me and said, Fritz, it is very good that you are ordained. Now listen to this. And they began their teachings their native teachings, with me standing on the very place where I was ordained into the ministry. And I thought, I, it's, it's like being reordained or your ordination being confirmed. It, but it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. Isn't that a fun story? A wonderful story. So uh, Thomas Berry is just so extraordinary in our minds and hearts and I still read his material quite often and as soon as I turn to it it's different I feel him it is in, to me a good lot of it is is profoundly inspirational and I can see his eyes I can hear his voice you probably can too and um, so there is kind of a unique and remarkable place that Thomas Berry has for us. And uh, he certainly does for Brian and Mary Ellen and for many, many people. You know, there's that whole book produced that was just tributes to Thomas Berry. He was, the, in the Celtic tradition, there is this word, the way, the way shore, the way shore. And Thomas Berry for us, definitely was and is um, a way shore. Let's take a break. Yeah, good.